This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Peter Levine and Maggie Phillips. Maggie Phillips is a licensed psychologist and currently serves as director of the California Institute of Clinical Hypnosis. She has authored numerous papers and articles, as well as the books Finding the Energy to Heal and Reversing Chronic Pain. Peter Levine has spent 45 years studying and treating stress and trauma. He is the developer of Somatic Experiencing, a naturalistic approach to healing trauma, and has practiced and taught at treatment centers, hospitals, and pain clinics throughout the world. Which sounds true, Peter Levine and Maggie Phillips have released a new book and an accompanying CD called Freedom from Pain, Discover Your Body's Power to Overcome Physical Pain. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Peter, Maggie, and I spoke about the prevalence of chronic pain in modern society and how physical pain may relate to past trauma. We also talked about the stages that pain sufferers commonly experience, and we talked about bracing patterns and a subsequent progression into what they refer to as the pain trap. Peter and Maggie explained the concept of self-regulation in dealing with physical pain and shared real-world examples of its effectiveness. Finally, they discussed the primary keys to solving what they call the puzzle of pain. Here's my very helpful conversation with Peter Levine and Maggie Phillips. In reading your book, Freedom from Pain, one of the things I discovered was how many people are actually in chronic pain. And it made me think of all of the people I interact with during the day and questioning how many of them might actually be in pain and the grumpiness that I sometimes sense in people. Maybe they're suffering from some you know, back pain or something like that. So how prevalent is chronic pain in our society today? Well, to give you an uh, idea of the scope of the problem, more people are suffering from chronic pain than from diabetes, cancer, and heart disease combined. So if you're going through your day at the checkout line, at your automobile mechanics, at some of the people who are, you know, your, your co-workers, colleagues, that you know that a significant proportion of those people are suffering, usually silently, from the from chronic pain. And unfortunately, uh, m- most doctors don't really have much education 
or an understanding of where to refer people who are seeking help from chronic pain. So every day we're meeting uh, a, a fair percentage of the people that we come in contact with are suffering from chronic pain. Now you talk about chronic pain as a puzzle, the puzzle of pain, that it's not as easy to understand as we might think. Can you help me understand that? Why is chronic pain so puzzling? Well, I would say that, that chronic pain is puzzling because it's so complex. There's no one source of pain. Uh, in fact, there are multiple factors that contribute to it. So we look at, at chronic pain from the standpoint of trauma because in our clinical practice, uh, combined practices over many years, uh, we have found that people who are not responding uh, to the usual treatments, almost always it's because they have some type of unresolved trauma that is being held in the body. And so the key to what we found really works for people is to help identify the source of trauma, to uh, help them find ways to release it for themselves that is safe and comfortable, and it helps them to expand their body experience and then we've been very successful to get to help those people move out of pain or at least to a place where it's manageable and they can live a good life. Help me understand how physical pain relates to a past trauma. That's not obvious to me. Well, uh, first I want to add one other thing. Pain in itself becomes traumatic. And so anybody who suffered from, from chronic pain for any uh, period of time is also experiencing trauma. But in trauma, what happens is our body stiffens to protect ourselves. Our shoulders get tight. Our back stiffens. Uh, or alternatively, uh, we collapse in helpless defeat. Trauma is something that happens in the body. And tension is one of the main causes of pain one of the main consequences of trauma. So if the body has become locked in a, in a protective encasement, protect itself from an external threat, from an emotional conflict which is untenable, then that tension that gets locked in our body actually generates the pain, and then the pain generates further bracing because we brace against the pain and that bracing causes more trauma, more pain. And so it's a feedback loop. It's a, you could say, a positive feedback loop with negative consequences. So that pain, the trauma leads to pain, pain leads to trauma, pain leads to fear, fear leads to more bracing, leads to more trauma. And there are many ways in which that can have which the the, uh, the trauma couldn't have arisen in the first place. Uh, so often people, when they've had a sometimes a relatively minor car accident where somebody comes and hits them from behind, again the body is thrown in a state of 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 paralyzed bracing because at that moment you don't know how serious that that impact is. So you are your body is protecting yourself from being just splattered. And we forget how to undo that. 
So, and as a matter of fact, often after an accident, we get a lot of adrenaline, so we feel really high, we feel really good, and we go on not even resting, and we, you know, and then we maybe find it difficult to sleep that night, and then over the next few days, the pain starts to to lock in. And so, uh, this is one of the very, very common causes of pain, but it's not due for example, it's not due to necessarily or even likely to an actual physical injury. The minor injury, the minor uh, impacts are, are generally not to do to any injury, any injury of the spine or any injury of the soft tissue, but to the bracing pattern. But all trauma involves a bracing pattern. So in this, um, in this program, we help people learn to identify in their bodies those bracing patterns so that they can undo them. You can say that trauma is something that happens in the body and the mind, the body and the brain and the mind, that doesn't unhappen. And so in this series, in this program, we help people to learn to release those bracing patterns and to not stiffen against the pain, therefore not causing the pain to recycle. I want to address what you said, Tammy, about it being counterintuitive. It's not obvious. And that's true of, of many people that we, that we see. Um, generally, people will come in um, many months and sometimes years after the accident or injury that really might have started the pain problem. And so they don't, you know, what they're involved with is what's going on with them now. And so stress, of course, we know makes everything or anything um, worse. It can exacerbate any kind of uh, medical condition. And so lots of times they're thinking, well, you know, I, I must have um, had trouble with repetitive injury at work. I mean, maybe that's why my shoulder's hurting is that I've been, been doing more computing than usual, and yet I don't understand. I've gone to all the doctors. I've done everything they've told me to do, and I'm not getting better. And, and the doctors don't understand either. They don't, you know, they don't know what to make of why I'm not recovering. And so that would be a situation where we would start talking to the person about the role of trauma. We might not even use that word, but we might say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about you know, this part of your body, if it's a shoulder injury or a shoulder pain that the person has, let's talk about as far back as you can remember any type of injury that happened to your shoulder. And so it's it's more in a conversational way. We will usually help people uncover the, the earlier sources of the uh, injury. And as Peter was saying, anytime there's an injury or a threat, uh, the threat, of course, is one of danger, but it also, because we're animals, the threat is to our survival. That's how the body experiences it. The body can't discriminate between, oh, well, you know, I'm not really hurt in this accident um, because, you know, nothing, uh, I can still move, I can still walk around, so I must be okay. The body is going to feel the impact uh, as a threat and then is going to, as Peter was saying, uh, going to respond with complex bracing patterns. Uh, and that, those, when those are held in the body and not released over time, and then of course we encounter other stresses. So it's not just maybe one trauma. It may be 
cumulative trauma that's built up over time. And the good news about what we're doing is that it doesn't really matter how many traumas or when the, the trauma started. Um, it's really about working with the person's body experience to the point where they can experience release and relief. Yeah, exactly. So they are perpetuating the pain cycle unconsciously. And as people become aware of that pattern, then they're able to release it. Also, it's worth adding that, and there's there's uh, considerable research on this, that people who have early trauma and abuse, trauma issues and trauma, are, again, much more likely to develop pain later in life. So it's kind of, that's one of the reasons that makes it complicated, uh, because it can, can come in any number of different directions. But the key is the final common pathway is in the body and how the body braces against what was originally a threat, but now becomes, becomes bracing against itself. Mm -hmm. It's again, recycling and, and reactivating that stress and maintaining it as chronic pain. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Let's talk a little bit more about the bracing pattern, because I'm imagining that most people can relate to that. That's something that they can feel to some degree inside of themselves, how they brace themselves in different situations. So why do we brace ourselves? I mean, I get it in terms of a car accident, because, you know, I don't, I don't want to get further hurt. But it sounds like you're describing that's a response that happens in all kinds of traumatic situations. Yes, that's right. Uh, for example, if you take, uh, as Peter was saying, early childhood trauma, and um, let's just go with uh, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or some combination of all three, um, what happens is that uh, in, in our young bodies, uh, we don't have enough cognition to be able to mitigate what's going on or to understand it. So we're just thrown into these primitive states where we have what we can think of as reflexive responses, where there's no thinking mind involved. And so if we're being hit or assaulted or threatened in some cases, um, then what will happen is that the body just automatically, reflexively responds. And it responds by bracing because you know, that is just the way, that's the way animals respond of all kinds. Um, they're going to uh, form this kind of constriction as a way of protection. It's, it's like, a, you know, as one of my clients was saying the other day, it's like a coat of armor. <laughs> and uh, it's there, I know I'm trying to protect myself, but at this time, I don't really have anything to protect myself from. You know, I have a, I have a good life. I've lowered my stress. 
I'm using the tools that I've learned from you. So why do I keep, you know, protecting myself, keep bracing? And that's where the second level of bracing comes in, if you want to look at it that way, which is that after a while, we get so frightened of what comes up inside of us when we're reminded of danger or threat that we react again protectively and reflexively. So again, we're not thinking about, well, there's really no danger here. Uh, we're just reacting. So we're, we initially brace against what we perceive as being real, uh, danger and what the body certainly identifies, uh, that way. And then later on, it's self-perpetuating because the person becomes scared of their inner experience or the constriction and pain in their body, and so they'll brace again. So let me give an example with an emotion. Let's just say somebody was uh, molested, abused as a child. The natural response is that of anger. And so when the anger may begin to arise even before the person is consciously aware of it, they, um, they push the anger down because of the fear of the anger, the fear that they might hurt themselves or hurt somebody because that's what anger is. It's about the impulse to strike out. Mm-hmm. So they push down on the anger. But then what happens, of course, is the anger pushes up even more, and then the person pushes down on the anger. And how do they do that? Again, we do that with our muscles. So whether it's the bracing pattern or whether it's emotions such as anger or fear or sorrow that we're frightened about, we brace against those equally. So again, it doesn't matter whether it's emotional or physical. The net response is to brace, to suppress, to hold in check. And the more we do that, the more it pushes and the more we what uh, we resist persists. And again, this is perpetuating the pain. And again, the pain is perpetuating more fear and more fear is perpetuating more tension and more pain and on and on and on. The key is in breaking this cycle wherever we can. So even if something has been chronic for years, and it comes from very early trauma, still through the tools awareness that we've developed in the program, people learn to touch into these sensations, to touch into these feelings, to befriend them, really. Not to suppress them, not to be overwhelmed with them, not to mindlessly expressing them, but to touch, to touching them, to becoming more in tune with our natural instincts. And this is what frees us ultimately, and is what the last chapter is the book, of the book is about, the book CD, is about coming back to wholeness, which is really, in a way, the surprising gift that trauma does give us. Because when we're able to transform it, we are gifted with with things that probably we wouldn't have accessed uh, had we not had these challenges to deal with in our lives. Now, there's many things that you're saying here that I think are quite radical. I'm just going to start with the first layer, which is that our physical chronic pain 
is not necessarily just physical. I mean, people think, I know someone, for example, who has very, very bad chronic back pain, and his approach is to, you know, get different kinds of injections, etc. I don't think he's looking at early trauma in his life as an aspect of what might be going on with his back pain. He thinks it's a physical problem. Yes. Um, let me just give you an example, maybe, of, of one of the, uh, the people that we talk about in the book, our client that we talk about in the book, who, this is a man who... Um, had 27 knee surgeries before he even came in for treatment. And uh, he, before that, had been very uh, physically fit. In fact, he was a fitness trainer. He'd, he'd gotten certified in that. And uh, then he later on, he drove a, a truck as a, a manager supervising people in the field to install um, air conditioning devices. And he had two... Um, car accidents while he was uh, driving in that job. Um, but the problem started when he, uh, at the age of 18, had a terrible motorcycle accident and uh, almost lost one of his legs. He convinced the doctor not to take it off. And that was where a lot of the multiple surgeries came in. They had to be, you know, try to repair his leg. But when um, when I saw him, he didn't he wasn't talking about that experience at all. It took two or three sessions before I could even find out um, that there was this important event that was back in his youth. And uh, this was 30 or 40 years later when he was having the, uh, he'd had already two knee replacements. Both of them had failed. And he came in because he had absolutely unbearable pain. And it was the first time in all those 27 procedures he had been, you know, able to manage his pain somehow. A lot of it was heavy, heavy narcotics. And, um, but it wasn't working anymore because, um, and I was able to explain this to him later because of how much trauma you've had, you, your dis dissociative protection, the walls that protect you, you from feeling everything that's happening in your body have broken down and they can no longer protect you. So once we started exploring, and of course you have to do this very carefully with somebody who has multiple traumas. And to be honest with you, that is most of us have, you know, more than one traumatic event in our lives. It's pretty rare if we don't. And that includes physical, but I'll, as Peter was saying, emotional, psychological, sometimes spiritual, there, there are many, many different kinds of trauma. And we also look at everyday trauma uh, that, that keeps getting repeated for people. And he'd had some of that. He had some uh, childhood abuse that he had um, not told anyone about, and that came to light. And also the fact that his mother, who had uh, MS, had died when he was about uh, nine years old, and that loss was very heavy for him. So as we were able to... Uh, explore these different kinds of experiences um, and helped him find how where they were stored in his body. But also, and this is very important, we don't just help people get in touch with trauma. That would be overwhelming and re-traumatizing. And the last thing anybody in chronic pain needs is more trauma. <laughs> so what we want to do is touch into the trauma as it's held in the body today and at the same time, find resources in the body that can heal the trauma as it's being held by it's helping the body experience expand. 
So that as Peter was saying, ultimately, it's that sense of wholeness when we're able to claim and, and experience and feel all of our experience at the same time. That's how we find wholeness. So it has to be resources that help the person recover and rebound from the trauma. At the same time, they're also touching into these wounds from the past. And getting back to the question that you asked, um, uh, Tammy, uh, that some people, you know, they have back problems and they think, of course, that there's something physically wrong with their back. And, for example, they may go to see an orthopedic surgeon and they look at the x-rays or the MRIs or the CT scans and the doctor says, well, look, here's, we can see where this problem is coming from. Uh, and that may be, that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But uh, some studies were done where uh, that, that people who had identical uh, radiographic uh, findings, so they, in other words, the two backs looked exactly the same, one person was in severe pain, the other person had no pain at all. Why is that? Well, again, these are the things that we address uh, in, this, in this program. Now, again, there are times when you have to have surgery. You know, when the, when the, when the legs are going numb, uh, you, you've, gone, you've gone past where, you know, where other methods can, can help, most likely. Uh, so it's important to be working with a physician as well as working psychologically or working with the body to, uh, to enlist its own healing uh, responses. Um, so you you do want, of course, to have to have uh, advice from a from a physician. But again, at the same time, I think people very often the doctor says, "Look, here's you see these X-rays. You know, your back is a mess. Then you know then." That, 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 that is the, the cause becomes locked in in the person's mind. And unfortunately, many times when surgeries are done where it wasn't really necessary actually leads to more pain. So in the, in the program, we do try to lead people through these questions and to be able to ask questions of their physicians and also to get second and maybe sometimes even third opinions. Uh, to, to, to kind of separate what the possibilities are and to not, because when you're in pain, people will do almost anything to get out of pain. And if so, if surgery is suggested, then maybe the person will go right into surgery when there really is breathing room to explore other possibilities such as what we describe in the program. Now, Peter, you said something very interesting. You said, two different people with the same basic x-rays, one could be in pain and one could not be in pain. How do you explain that? Well, again, we don't have, we don't know all the reasons for that, but it's very likely that, although I don't believe studies were done specifically on, uh, you know, on this hypothesis, that, that the people with the higher pain are the ones that have the, the greater trauma histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and or the greater bracing patterns. But again, remember, the bracing pattern, no matter what causes it, causes more pain. Uh, so again, uh, if you, you know, there are, there are certain indications where, where surgery is, 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 is absolutely necessary. But m- my experience and those of many orthopedic surgeons that I've s- spoken to really feel that that is in a minority 
of the people who see them for pain. So we, again, try to get the dialogue, uh, an effective dialogue, uh, positive dialogue between physicians and patients. It, it sounds like that's the place where the pain is made worse. It's amplified because of this bracing pattern. And Maggie, you were talking about how in the somatic experiencing method that you and Peter teach, there's a way to interrupt this pattern right here in the present. So talk to me about that. How do we do that? Right. Okay. Um, let me give you an example, and then then I'll talk from that. Uh, this is, a, and you mentioned back pain, and it's so common, so I'll, I'll use that as an example. Um, working with a, uh, I think he's probably about 38 years old now, and uh, he has had back surgery before he worked with me. And the reason that he got in touch with me is because the back surgery made him worse. Basically, it caused more pain, more, and of course, Peter and I know more bracing, and I'll get to that in a moment. And so that's why he said, I need help. I don't understand what's going on. Other people that have had the same surgery and went to the same physical therapist that I did, you know, they're doing fine. Why is it that I am struggling like this? And I, after talking to him, I, I assured him that he was, you know, he was not malingering. He was, uh, it wasn't all in his head. You know, in fact, there were probably some very good reasons as to why he wasn't recovering and that we needed to uh, look at them together so we could help him uh, recover from those. Well, as we began to work together, it turns out that what he does is, um, or what he did after the surgery was that he braced against the pain and the fear of the surgery itself in ways that other people don't always brace. Now, why is that? You know, and this is where we had to, you know, get a little bit creative and, and uh, help him be willing. And, and the main word that Peter and I use is curious. We try to help people develop curiosity about, yeah, how, what could explain this? You know, um, it doesn't mean that something is wrong with me. It means that maybe something is right with me, that my body is simply, you know, trying to help me in ways that I don't recognize. And it can be sometimes that the mind is fighting back against what the body is trying to do. So that was true in his case. Um, what he would do is sort of beat himself up internally that he wasn't working hard enough in physical therapy or he wasn't exercising enough. He was getting lazy. Um, he had this uh, kind of inner critical pattern that went on that really um, further kept him bracing against himself. And uh, so he began to recognize as we unfolded some of this, he began to recognize that his body was tense when he would have these onslaughts of criticism or when he would push himself further. He was a, he, he happened to be a surfer and he was a competitive surfer before all of this started happening. So he was used to pushing his body and he didn't recognize that, you know, now when he pushes after he's been traumatized by the surgery as well as the injury before that, that he's getting a third layer of bracing and constriction. And so what he's learning to do now is to A, recognize it. And so part of our approach really is a mindful one. You know, that is, we train people how to get curious about their experience and how to accept it um, and how to connect with it. 
So he has learned some of those skills. And now when he gets scared, he goes back to his surgeon. And the last time this happened, you know, he called me up in a panic and said, you know, I, I think, I mean, the surgeon told me I might need more surgery and maybe I should just go ahead and do that because I'm just not progressing enough. And I said, okay, wait a minute. So stop right now and tell me what's happening inside you as you tell me about your visit to the surgeon. And he was able, because he'd learned the skills and been practicing them, he was able to say, oh, wow, I'm just really tight, really tense. Uh, I feel like I'm really wound up tight. And also I have this, um, I have this pain. And not only he had pain in, a, in the core of his body, which is, you know, sometimes related to, uh, to fear, internal fear. And then he also had the increase in fear in his back. Uh, fear and that therefore pain in his back just from talking about the visit to the surgeon. So as he was able to recognize that, he has learned some ways of breathing, which we include in the program, and and just focusing on his breath uh, in a very neutral way. He was able to slow down and calm down. And after about two minutes, he said, you know, I think that was just my fear working against me. He said, I know it's not a good idea for me to think about having another surgery. I need to do a lot more homework and a lot more uh, work on myself before I make those kinds of decisions. So that's just an example of how you can work with somebody who's going through that kind of bracing, double bracing, triple bracing pain trap that we then can help them out of by learning to work with their body in a different way. And this pain trap, self-blame, is a hook in the pain trap. And what we try to do, and I think we have done in the program, is really help people understand that this is not due to a weakness, a mental weakness. It's that, that, that there are reasons for that. And that as they can identify what the reasons are and work with them, then they get freedom from their pain. So... What we, what we do is we, people who are in chronic pain are in the pain trap. What we try to do is help them find where they are trapped and then help them find ways to find the exit from that trap. It seems that part of the trap is that when you're feeling terrible in your body, the last place you want to go is to your body. You don't want to pay attention to your body. You want to escape from it. So how do you help people cross that divide? Well, Maggie was talking about curiosity. You know, this expression about curiosity in the cat, right? At least in uh, Kansas, they say that let the cat to the realization of its own highest potential. As we get people to be curious, truly, to be able to explore these things, that in itself reduces a lot of the fear and a lot of the, the tension because a lot of the fear is, oh my God, the kind of catastrophic thinking. So as people are able to explore and find the roots of the problem and to deal with them, well, then they, 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 that, that's when the, the pain, uh, the pain, uh, it reduces or, or even resolves. And we also find it helpful to explain sometimes what's going on in the body in terms of animal behavior. Uh, 
um, because it helps them normalize what's happening. So most people have uh, have had pets, for example, um, even if they haven't been lucky enough to be in the wilds of Africa and see uh, animals in their habitats, they've seen their pets become threatened. And, um, you know, so we talk about it in terms of, you know, have you ever seen your dog or your cat um, stiffen up, you know, at times when maybe you didn't understand what was going on? And they stop everything. The, the, the animal stops everything. They're completely frozen, completely still. And it takes them a while before they can ascertain that, you know, it's a garbage truck or uh, whatever it is that they're responding to isn't really life-threatening. And then they will move automatically. And the key there is move. They will move their bodies through and past the fear and the bracing to the other side of that. And they're, as Peter was saying, they're free at that point. So most people can understand that. And, and we tell them, well, and that's what's going on sometimes inside of you, is that, you know, your main enemy may be fear. And at a primitive level, just like my dog is afraid that she may get completely uh, overwhelmed by a garbage truck, you know, the fear is uh, at the deepest level is that I won't survive. You know, something is so terrible that it will kill me or it will, you know, ruin me and overwhelm me uh, and destroy me. And so once we can help people understand where those really deep survival fears come from and they are curious about their bodies and how their bodies can help them through this, uh, then we can get them uh, into a place of uh, more hope. Because I think that's where the hope comes from. Right. And, you know, and animals are doing things all the time to relieve tension and stress. Dogs, cats, the way they stretch, the way they yawn, what they're doing essentially is uh, dissolving the stress that may have occurred in a uh, in, a, in, a, in a threatening situation, such as being frightened by a loud sound. And again, they go through the whole day regulating their level of tension through stretching and through other similar kinds of movements, gentle shaking and trembling. And again, if people don't know that this is actually helping them come back into equilibrium, to come back into inner balance, they um, they. They fight against it. And yeah. by guiding people through this, they get to say, oh my gosh, the thing that I was frightened about is exactly the thing that's making the tension and the pain disappear. Now, you introduce a, a term in the freedom from pain approach that I think is really interesting, the term self-regulation. And in the book, it states that self-regulation is the cornerstone of our approach so can you explain to me what you mean? What, what goes up will come down. Look, animals are threatened on a routine basis in the wild, right? A predator is always stalking prey. Prey is always trying to get away from a predator to not be, to not be eaten. And what happens is after an encounter, well, in a successful encounter, the prey animal, say the rabbit, runs away and escapes from the coyote. But another thing is possible, and you see this, for example, with an opossum. 
because the possum doesn't really have the speed to escape. So what it does is it plays a possum. Well, it's not playing a possum. It's a profound physiological response that actually inhibits the aggression and the eating behavior of a predator. When the animal, so in other words, instead of running, discharge this energy, to discharge this arousal, it goes into this shock response, this immobility response. And to, but the nervous system is still supercharged. It's sort of like our brake and accelerator. Our, our accelerator is going on at, you know, at 100 miles an hour, and we have the, the, the brake put, put, put on at the same time, so it keeps us paralyzed. But underneath the stillness of the, of the coyote, of the uh, opossum, underneath the stillness is this tremendous arousal of the fight, flight, fear, sympathetic adrenal response. And so the animal has an innate ability, and so do we, because really, ultimately, we are animals, to discharge that, that aroused state and to bring us back to equilibrium so that we're not, don't take that into the next next day or even to the next moment. So we always go back to neutral. We always go back to balance. This is built in. It's innate. That's what self-regulation is about. And as I said before, many people have learned to not trust that. We help people learn to regather trust for these mechanisms, which will take them back into healing. Right. I mean, in the example that I gave earlier um, about the, the young man with the back problem, uh, one of the things that he learned to do was to regulate not only his fear, but also uh, the, the kinds of movements that he was doing. I, w- I asked him to show me you know, some of the movements that, uh, for example, you learn a lot by asking someone, well, have you been given exercises uh, for recovering from the surgery or, or whatever they're dealing with? And I asked him to show me what are some of the um, the exercises or show me one exercise that you usually do. Um, and he showed me and his body, he was moving so quickly and in with jerky motions that I knew there was no way that the exercise was really doing him much of any good because he wasn't connected to his body experience. So I helped him learn. I said, let's see if we can find a feeling of balance in your body as you're doing the exercise. And even if you just do one little part of it, let's find out what difference that makes. So I had him slow down his movement and make it very intentional instead of like a a reflex like, you know, being afraid to touch a hot stove and you, you know, draw back quickly. That was the kind of movement he was making. And as he slowed down and we added in some breathing and some rhythmic breathing that helped the movement become more smooth and easy. And after about two minutes, two or three minutes, he says, "I, I haven't felt like this in months. He said, I certainly haven't felt like this since the surgery. And I said, well, what what if, what are you learning right now that may explain that? And he said, well, I can see I am not connected with my body. I'm not working with my body at all. I'm not even in my body. And so that's what we found that a lot of people need help with is the simple practice, uh, and, and it's an early exercise in our program, of reclaiming and re-inhabiting your body. 
Have you ever encountered people who were in such dire chronic pain that you couldn't help them at all, that they were beyond help? I can't think of any that was beyond help. No, I, I, I mean, in over 40 years, uh, I'm, there have been cases where surgeries had to be done because otherwise, I mean, even, even, even when surgery is, is necessary, uh, you still can help reduce the pain somewhat and also help increase the recovery uh, after, after the surgery. But especially when there, when there wasn't, uh, you know, a, um, a tissue damage site, uh, I, I cannot think of somebody, not everybody is completely free of pain, but I can't think of anybody who was in such pain that they weren't able to get some significant relief. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, I don't, first of all, I just categorically don't believe that anyone is beyond help. Um, they can always learn something from what we are offering them. Why? Because A, it makes sense to them once they understand what's going on. And understanding what's going on, uh, as we've been explaining in this interview, uh, gives them a sense of empowerment. Um, it gives them a sense of choice. So they may decide to go on with a surgery uh, with the understanding that they can use the tools that we're teaching them to help them recover from it, if that's what the best choice is for them. Uh, now, there are a couple uh, of people that I have found very difficult to work with, and that's a, that's a different issue. Uh, there are some people who uh, really, I, I believe, have had um, attachment or relational trauma very early, and so their problem is they can't trust anyone to help them. They, they want desperately to believe that someone can give them some tools that will really make a difference or that somebody cares enough about them um, that they want to, to try to help them out of pain. But they, for their own good reasons in being traumatized and abused, it's very hard for them to persist long enough against the fear that they have about trusting you, that you're going to just be one more person that lets them down or manipulates or exploits them in some way. And so when we get into cases like that, it's much more complex. But I, I don't ever believe that um, that anyone is beyond help. And it's very important to, I, I believe, to keep trying to repair the relationship um, that you're forming with the person at the same time you are offering them tools. You can't just, uh, you know, be a mechanic, neither Peter... <laughs> or I uh, believe in that at all. We, we put as much thought and care into the relationship as we do into the tools we're teaching. And we've tried to convey some of that feeling in the program itself. So even though, obviously, we're not, doing, we're not seeing the, each person individually, we try to, to convey that kind of openness and invitation to people. And because, again, like we said at the beginning, that people with early trauma tend to have higher incidence of chronic pain. And these are people who have not been understood or not been cared about or uh, who are people who have given up on them in the past. I mean, obviously, this doesn't in any way substitute for individual therapy. Uh, but it certainly can be a very helpful adjunct. It can be something that both therapists and clients can use to help continue 
the therapy outside of the individual session work. Now, I'm going to take this just a little bit further because I, I have personally known people who have really suffered from chronic pain. And I'm imagining one of those people listening to our conversation and feeling, you know, I just feel like my situation is hopeless. I've tried for so long and, and now, you know, a book CD is going to help me. A series of exercises are going to help me. I, I just don't buy it. I, I'm just in pain. What would you say to such a person? Well, helplessness is a characteristic of trauma. And so when we help people begin to, and we have a, a chapter on depression, to move out of helplessness and depression, then, you know, it's kind of like, okay, if it's a, a cloudy, rainy day, there's nothing you can do except wait for the, if you want sun, is to wait for it to change. And so when we, we have this mood of resignation and depression, well, actually, if we can do something that can change the depression, then the light on the problem will be different. Now, look, I don't think anybody who has had chronic pain doesn't at some time feel, myself included, I'm never going to get better. It's a normal part of the process. But again, if we can help people deal with the resignation, then they have a brighter light to shine on the problem and on the tools that might be able to help them. Now, some of the tools, and we're very clear about this, won't work for you. But we have given tools that at least some of them will work for most people. Hopefully, something will work for everybody. The only thing we could say is, look, we hope you give this a try. Of course, it's not a guarantee. And it's something that in our uh, total about 80 years of clinical experience, we found that these kinds of tools are helpful. And we, we sincerely believe that they will be helpful as we present them here. Not for every single person, much as everybody would want, but I think that most people can get something out of the program. Yeah, I tell people that my job is to help them find at least one tool that they haven't been able to find or use successfully before that really makes a significant difference in their pain. And I take that very seriously as a challenge which, with each person that I work with. And we that's our challenge with people who are um, going to consider this the Freedom From Pain program is that we believe that we have put together the best of our thinking, the best results of 80 years of combined clinical practice, things that that have worked with people that never had uh, hope before in many cases. Uh, and we teach people to start to try something once. The, the very first possibility and invitation is, are you willing to try this one tool to see if it can make a difference? And if it doesn't, move on, because there are at least probably 40 more tools in this program, and one of them is going to work for you. And so it really is a, a question of helping people feel empowered and also teaching people is that this a lot of this is about choice. The choice is not about being in pain. That's not what we're saying. Uh, we know a lot of people who've had terrible things happen to them and it's amazing that they're still alive uh, and their suffering is overwhelming. And we have great empathy with that. 
However, you know, it is a question of choice about what they are willing to try, uh, what they're willing to experiment with. And on the basis of those experiments, we are able to learn as they learn what happens as they encounter the tool or work with the tool, and then we can modify. We can modify it so that the tool begins to work in a more and more effective way. And so really, uh, we're not telling people that we're miracle workers. uh, Far from it. We're just saying we believe in the tools and we believe in the method. And we want you to to find one thing that might work for you. Now, Peter, you said something very interesting that hopelessness, depression is actually part, is intrinsic to the trauma experience. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, look at the opossum. The opossum goes into this, this immobility response where it's motionless. And then when the coyote goes off, it goes away, it comes out of this and goes off to finish its day. Now, Humans go into this, this immobility response, but we find it more difficult to come out of it. And the, the experience of this immobility response is of helplessness. It is of helplessness. So as people learn to actually complete this and to come back into life, then the helplessness is reduced. So helplessness, you could say, is a psychological component or a psychological aspect of the biological uh, immobility response, which we share with all mammals. Actually, we share with many insects. This is a very powerful survival response. But if we get stuck in it, instead of perceiving that we that we feel immobile, and that that's a physical thing in the body and that it can change, we tend to to psychologize it as feeling helpless. When we can change the physiology, then the psychology will follow. Just a, another word about this is that I think most people are familiar with fight, flight, and freeze. They know that these are the three survival responses um, that we have inherited as animals on this earth. And um, what one of the things that we do is to educate them as to which symptoms, so to speak, uh, are connected to each of those uh, un- com- incompleted or thwarted responses. In other words, unlike the animals in the wild, we can't keep running and running and running away from a danger. I mean, how do you run away from a car accident if you're involved in it? You can't. Or how do you run away from somebody who's trying to abuse you? Uh, fight back, complete the fight response because of the same kinds of issues. Um, but freeze, like Peter was saying about the possum, that is the only avenue that's left open to human beings in many cases. And so we educate people about this and we tell them that if you've been in the freeze response for a long time and it's being held in your body as this huge constriction and immobility, then you are going to go into a state of collapse and frozenness. And in uh, at the emotional level, that takes the form of depression. At the physical level, 
it can take the form of massive constriction that creates terrible pain that you don't get relief from. So I think that education is really, really important for people to understand that. Because out of education comes self-compassion. Because when you see that there's a reason, you first of all have more compassion. There's less self-blame. And second, it gives you a clear pathway or a or some pathways to explore to come out of this and to return, to re-regulate, to find our inner balance again. We started by talking about the puzzle of pain and how it's a lot more complicated than somebody might think at first. It's not just, I'm in physical pain and, and I need someone to fix my body. And I think this conversation has helped underscore, highlight, and show the complexity of the puzzle of pain. So here, as we're coming to a conclusion, if you had to summarize what you think the keys are to solving this puzzle for an individual, if you could just give them a a small key ring of the most important keys to solving the puzzle of pain, what would be the keys on that key ring? First would be one size doesn't fit all. Uh, what t- the tools that work with one person may not work with another and to be open to explore uh, different possibilities. The second key might be um, healing through the body, that we understand that you've disconnected from your body for good reason as an attempt to uh, regulate the suffering that you've had that just feels unbearable. And yet the challenge is who find out how connection with your body can make all the difference, can bring you into contact with resources that you've never found before. And that there are tools that can help us befriend, refriend our bodies and begin to come out of the patterns, the body patterns, the tension patterns that are actually generating a significant portion of the pain, if not the entire pain. Wonderful. Maggie Phillips and Peter Levine summarizing, solving the puzzle of pain with three keys. Thank you so much for that terrific summary and mostly for the important work you're doing and the program that you've put together, Freedom from Pain, Discovering Your Body's Power to Overcome Physical Pain. It's a book and a CD of guided practices a self-guided program that people can work with in their own way to overcome physical pain. Uh, Thank you both so much. Peter Levine has also created a series of audio programs with Sounds True on sexual healing, transforming the sacred wound, and a program for guiding your children through trauma called It Won't Hurt Forever. And he's also written a book that also has an accompanying CD on healing trauma, restoring the wisdom of your body. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks, everyone.